We're getting very close to the end of our series on James, and there's one thing that I I think has really stood out to all of us about the book of James. James is intensely practical. This is a book about how to live. James is not shy to give very specific directives about what the people of God are to do. Certainly James is concerned with the content of the faith we profess as well, the doctrines we believe. But for James, the faith we profess must make a difference in our lives. It's not enough to have orthodoxy, right, belief. We must also have orthopraxy, right, practice. Right believing must lead to right doing. Otherwise, James would tell us our faith is fake. Our faith is false. Our faith is empty. Every doctrine we're taught in Scripture, every doctrine we believe, should make a difference in our lives. Anytime you learn some new truth, you should ask, how is this going to work out in my life? How is this going to lead me to live differently? Because that's what James wants for us. One of the ways our faith must be enacted, one of the ways we must put our faith into practice is through prayer. And James has quite a bit to say about James begins and ends his letter with commands to pray. It's almost like they are bookends around the letter, almost right at the beginning and then almost right at the end. He's got these instructions about prayer, and he's got more teaching on prayer in the middle of the letter. So prayer is all over this letter, just sprinkled throughout James' five chapters. In chapter 1, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask, let him pray for it to the God who gives generously to all and without reproach. And it will be granted to him. So at the beginning of the letter, he says, if you lack wisdom, pray. And God, who gives generously and liberally and without reproach, will give you what you're asking. In chapter 4, towards the, really in the middle of the letter, you could say, uh, James says, you have not because you ask not. So you don't have because you have failed to pray. And he says, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. You pray in the wrong way with the wrong motive and for the wrong things. And then here in chapter 5, he returns to the topic of prayer. He says the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And that may mean physical healing, or it may be the kind of healing described in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter, echoing Isaiah 53, says he was wounded by his wounds, we are healed. So there's that kind of healing as well, more of a a spiritual healing that ultimately happens in the resurrection. But whatever the case, James says there will be healing for God's people who are sick, whether in this life or in the resurrection. And then James goes on, building on this, uh, what he's just said about prayer. He says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then James goes on to give Elijah as an example, pointing to the story in 1 Kings 17 and 18 as his illustration. Really interesting to me that James picks the example of Elijah to show the power of prayer. Elijah is probably best known for his miracles, probably better known for his miracles than for his prayers. And yet James chooses to highlight his prayers. It's interesting, you've got a lot of other great prayers, a lot of other uh, great men of prayer in the Old Testament that James could have chosen. We might think of Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, or Moses praying that the nation of Israel would be spared after the golden calf incident. Uh, Prophets like Amos and Jeremiah have very effective prayer ministries. They're heard by God, and God, in some kind of mysterious way that's not inconsistent with his sovereignty, changes his mind. Uh, to act in accord with the prayers of the prophet. 
It's interesting to me he chooses Elijah. Just as James chose Job to illustrate patience, so he chooses Elijah to illustrate prayer. Powerful prayer. And so we have to ask this morning, what can we learn from Elijah about prayer? How can we learn to pray like Elijah and with similar results? If we want our prayers to pierce the heavens and to change things on earth, how should we then pray? How do we pray with power? Well, James answers these questions for us. He does not teach us everything we need to know about prayer. Certainly, uh, you can fill in uh, what's missing here with other texts of Scripture. But he focuses on aspects of prayer that are important, and, and they're important at least in part because they are so neglected. And the reason these truths about prayer are neglected is because they are hard-edged truths. They are hard for us to hear. They're hard for us to take, hard for us to handle. There are three things James tells us about Elijah's prayer life that we must know here. And I'm going to use other illustrations from Scripture as well as James' uh, choice of Elijah. But three things that we've got to know about prayer. We want to pray like Elijah. First, the context of prayer. Second, the character of the one who prays. And then third, the content of the prayer. So those three things. The context of prayer, the character of the one who prays, and the content of the prayer. First, let's talk about context. Prayer must be offered in the context of a fervent heart. Prayer must be the overflow, the outflow of a fervent heart. Prayer must be fervent. The effectiveness of our prayers is tied to their fervency, their passion. Hear that again. The effectiveness of our prayers is tied to the fervency and the passion with which they are offered. Makes a lot of sense, really, if you think about it. If we don't care that much about what we're praying for, why should God care to answer us? Your attitude, your posture, the posture of your heart in prayer matters. Prayer is not a, a mechanical, stoic action. You can't pray effectively if you pray robotically. And so we should ask ourselves do I pray earnestly? Do I pray sincerely? Do I pray fervently? Do I pray from the heart? In prayer, am I pouring out my heart before the Lord? You can see what fervent prayer looks like by going to the book of Psalms. Every prayer, all 150 prayers in the book of Psalms are fervent. They are models of what fervent prayer looks like. Sometimes the psalmist is praying out of his deep pain and agony, uh, maybe in his own life or maybe his frustration with the circumstances he sees in the world all around him. And he cries out to God. It's clear he's praying with great fervency, with great passion. At other times he's praying with great joy and enthusiasm, thanking God for his benefits, thanking God for the way he's worked or acted to deliver in some way. Or consider this example from Daniel chapter 9. This is Daniel's fervent prayer. Listen to, to this and you can just feel in the language he uses the fervency, the passion, the intensity. In Daniel 9 he prays, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That's a model of fervency. Of course, Jesus always prayed fervently. All the prayers Jesus offered are offered with fervency, with passion, with intensity. And we see this intensity increase as he gets closer and closer to the cross. Before he goes to the cross, when he's in Gethsemane praying before his crucifixion, Luke 22 tells us, being in agony 
He prayed earnestly. Or we could read that, he prayed fervently. And his sweat became like great drops of blood. That's fervent prayer. That's what it means to pray with fervently. He prayed, and, and prayer for Jesus was work. And as he prayed diligently, as he worked at prayer, his sweat became like great drops of blood. Hebrews 5 says Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. And of course, there's the example of Elijah. Elijah is certainly an example of fervent prayer. When he prays for rain at the end of 1 Kings 18 in the passage we read, it is most certainly a fervent prayer, a prayer of great intensity. What do we see him do? He goes up to the highest place on Mount Carmel and he bows himself down and he puts his face between his knees and that posture is a sign of his humility. It's also a sign of his passion and he prays. And he keeps on praying for rain. And each time he prays, he has his servant go and look for rain clouds forming off in the horizon. And finally, on the seventh time, at the seventh time he goes and looks, his servant can see a rain cloud like a man's fist forming off in the distance. James describes this in chapter 5, verse 17. Quite, if, you took, if you translated this literally in the Greek, what it would say it would, be, it would sound redundant to us in English, but it's a common way of, of speaking or writing in Hebrew. This kind of thing shows up a lot in uh, the Old Testament. But James says, praying, he prayed. He doubles up that word prayer to show the intensity. In prayer, he prayed. That's what James says. The word prayer is doubled up. Now, again, a lot of translations, understandably, instead of doubling up the word prayer, describe his prayer by saying it was fervent or earnest. And that certainly is how he prayed. The point is, he really prayed. Elijah's not just going through the motions. He's really praying with intensity. And so we can say, whatever situation we find ourselves in, when it comes to prayer, when we turn to the Lord in prayer, when we stand before the Lord in prayer, intensity matters. You cannot just go through the motions and expect an answer. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't think this means you've got to have some elaborate or dramatic display of emotion in prayer. That could even become a kind of pharisaical thing where you're trying to show off your spirituality. That's not the point. The point is not that fervency is some kind of outward show. It might show itself outwardly. I'm not saying that it can't. I'm just saying, don't think that that's the main thing it consists in here. The point is that praying should have a kind of gravitas to it. When we go to prayer, when we go to pray, there should be a kind of gravitas to our prayers. There is a weightiness in the act of prayer itself. Think about what you are doing when you pray. So often we, we treat prayer so casually. If we want God to take our prayers seriously, we must take them seriously too. And that means we should try as much as possible to get our heart and mind in the right frame when we go to pray. What are you doing when you're praying? You are talking to the God of the universe. The God who made everything we see and everything we can't see. The God who constantly controls and upholds Every atom, every subatomic particle in the universe, it's all there to do his bidding. It all exists at his command and his will. That's who you're talking to. And if that's who you're talking to, then yes, you ought to pray with some passion. You ought to pray with reverence. You ought to pray with a kind of godly fear. You ought to pray with humility. See, why does fervency matter? 
There are all kinds of reasons why fervency matters. One thing is fervency shows God we really want those things we're asking for. But you know what else happens when you are fervent in prayer? When you're fervent about anything, you know what you do? You tend to get other people, you tend to draw other people into it. Your fervency, your enthusiasm, your passion is contagious. And so when you are fervent in prayer, it's much more likely you're going to ask other people to join you in praying for the cause. Whatever it is you're praying for, if you're fervent about it, you're much more likely to ask other people to join you in prayer. And so that solo prayer becomes a corporate prayer. And as those prayers are multiplied, so is their power. Or here's something else. Here's one way, in fact, I think you can test your fervency in prayer. If you're really fervent in prayer, you will be persistent in prayer. You won't just pray for something once and then forget about it and go on with your life. You will pray and you will keep on praying. In prayer, you'll pray. You know, the, 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 the prayers doubled up there in, in James for Elijah, perhaps because Elijah prayed again and again. What do you do if you're fervent in prayer? You're going to knock and keep on knocking. You're going to knock, you're going to ask, you're going to seek. Jesus taught about this in a parable in Luke 18. And Luke sums up the point of the parable this way, that we ought to pray persistently without giving up or losing heart. That's how Luke describes the parable Jesus teaches about prayer, about the persistent widow going to the judge again and again to get justice. That's how he describes it. That's how we should be. If we're praying fervently, we will pray persistently. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, we ought to pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Pray and keep on praying. Prayer is work. It is hard work. But if we are fervent in prayer, we'll be diligent and devoted in our prayers. Now thinking about it this way, have you ever prayed fervently? Are your prayers regularly characterized by fervency? Do you work at prayer? Do you think about the word you're praying? And, and, and through those words, pour your heart out before God. How badly do you want what you're praying for? How much energy do you pour into prayer? Being fervent and intense and persistent and reverent in prayer shows that our hope is in God alone. When we pray fervently, we are casting ourselves upon God utterly and completely. We are saying, God, I am utterly dependent upon you. If you don't act in response to my prayer, this is not going to happen. A fervent prayer is much more likely to pierce the heavens and get an answer from God than a prayer that is offered in a perfunctory or indifferent way. And that is because prayer is an aspect of our relationship with God. Now, don't misunderstand here. I'm not saying you should only pray when you really feel like it or when something so terrible or tragic has happened that now all of a sudden you've got fervency for the cause. No, I'm saying when you pray, you should always seek to pray with some level of fervency. And I'm saying that the quality of our prayers, the fervency and intensity of our prayers, that matters to God. And that's because we have a personal relationship with God. This is how all relationships are. If someone is talking to you about something and you can tell they're kind of indifferent about it, and they're kind of lackadaisical about what they have to say, you're not going to get that interested in it. They can't draw you in. They're not that interested, so why should you get interested? But if somebody shows passion about something, if they show a real interest, a real investment in what they're talking about, again, that can be contagious. It can draw you in. That's how all relationships are. Well, prayer is relational. Prayer is right at the heart of our relationship with God. And so fervency matters. 
But that's not all that's here. It might be uh, offensive in our modern egalitarian age. We want everybody and everything to be equal. It might be offensive to say not all prayers are equal. Some prayers are better than others. And, and to some degree, the quality of that prayer is measured by its fervency. But there's something else here that I think is even more offensive. Not only can we say not all prayers are equal, but we also have to say not all prayers are equal. Not all prayers are going to pray with the same power. That's the second thing we see here. The character of the one praying. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does it mean here to be righteous? What is James talking about when he says the, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much? Well, we Christians talk about a twofold righteousness. There is being declared righteous and there is living righteous. So there's being declared righteous and there's living righteous. And you've got to have both and they can't be separated from one another. The gospel promises us both. So in terms of that first kind of righteousness, being declared righteous, we all share equally in the righteousness of Christ. In that sense, we all have the same status, the same standing before God. We have the same status before God in terms of our union with Christ. The same declaration has been passed over us. The same verdict is passed over all of us as soon as we trust in Jesus. We are equal before God in our justification. No question about that. No question. But we are not all equally righteous in how we live. We're not all equally sanctified or matured or transformed. Some Christians are more righteous than others. Some Christians are more righteous in how they live than others. Some Christians are more obedient than others, more faithful than others. And yes, that means we should expect those Christians to pray with greater power. Now really, this should be obvious to you. We know we're not all at the same level. Some of us have been Christians much longer than others. Uh, you, you even know this from your own life. You, you can uh, hopefully look at your life and see how you have grown in righteousness and obedience, you know, and practical daily obedience over time. And so hopefully you are more mature today as a believer, more obedient, more faithful today than you were, say, five years ago. Hopefully that's the case. James' point here is that the spiritual condition, the life or, or the lifestyle, we could say, of the one praying has a bearing on the effectiveness of that prayer. The righteous man prays in faith and his righteousness is a factor in his prayers being answered. What does it mean to be righteous? What, what characterizes the righteous man? Well, fundamentally to be righteous means you live by faith. You live and act out of faith. And so the righteous man prays trusting God. Trusting his heavenly father. Trusting his heavenly father knows best. Certainly trusting that his heavenly father knows better than we do. And so sometimes the righteous man recognizes God's going to say no to us the same way an earthly father sometimes has to tell his five-year-old no to some request because the father knows better than the five-year-old. And our heavenly father knows better than we do. And so sometimes we offer up a prayer and God says no because God knows better than us. And if we're righteous and we're Praying by faith, walking by faith, living by faith, we'll accept that answer because, again, we know that God has greater wisdom than we do. 
But here's really the point I think James is making. If you want your prayers to be answered, you need to obey. Our obedience in daily life increases the effectiveness of our prayers. God has set the terms and conditions of answering prayer. And he requires obedience. To put it this way, God only listens to those who listen to him. Why should God do what you say if you won't do what he says? God only listens to those who listen to him. If you want God to do what you say, you need to do what he says. Or actually, we can turn this around because this is something scripture has quite a bit to say about. Put this another way. We can reverse this. If obedience makes our prayers more effective, we could say sin hinders our prayers from being answered. Sin actually hinders your prayers from being answered. Scripture actually says this again and again. I don't hear a whole lot of people in the church talk about this, but it's true. Consider some passages. Here's one. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's Psalm 66. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. In other words, again, if you won't listen to God's law, if you turn your heart away from God's law, why should God listen to you? Your prayer is now an abomination before God. He's not going to listen to that kind of prayer. He's not going to listen to the prayers of those who have turned away from him, those who have become hypocrites. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. That's Isaiah 59. In Isaiah chapter 1, after listing the sins of the people, the multitude of, uh, of sins of the people, there are many sins that they have not repented of. God says, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Because they've lived disobediently, God's not going to listen to their prayers. Well, here's a really interesting one. Husbands, listen to this. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter says to husbands, if you don't listen to and care for your wife, don't expect God to listen to you either. If you don't take good care of your wife and, and, and cherish her and listen to her, why should God listen to your prayers and, and, and cherish you? If you don't care for her, he won't care for you. If you don't answer her, he won't answer you. That's what Peter is saying. A husband's sin can actually hinder the effectiveness of his prayers. How many husbands have had prayers go unanswered because of the way they treated their wife or mistreated their wife? Even within the book of James, we've already seen this. In chapter 1, right after promising God will answer a prayer for wisdom because he's the generous God who gives liberally without reproach, James goes on and says this, but let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind and that person should not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. James is saying, look, if you are double-minded and doubting, do not expect your prayer to be answered. The fervent prayer of a righteous man is effective, but the doubting prayer of a double-minded man is not. That's what James is saying. Remember in, in the story in 1 Kings when Elijah says to the people of Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, and if Baal is God, follow him. 
That's kind of the whole message of James in a nutshell. That, that one line, that one challenge that James, that, that, that Elijah gives to the people of Israel. James is giving the same challenge to the church of his day. How long are you going to be double-minded? How long are you going to try to live with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world? How long are you going to waver between these two opinions? Make up your mind. If Jesus Christ is really Lord of Lords and King of Kings, then serve Him. That's really what James is saying. Double-minded people who want a foot in each camp can never pray effectively. If you're hedging your bets with other props, other gods, other idols, don't expect your prayers to be answered. In James 4, he says this. I've already made reference to this, but it fits here. He says, you pray, that is you ask. So he says, you ask, you pray, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your own desires. He talks in that context about how they're living selfishly, and so, of course, they're praying selfishly. And the prayers of selfish people are selfish, and selfish prayers do not get answered. Some prayers are disqualified because the the prayer offers them in a self-centered way. So sin hinders prayer. Righteousness adds to the effectiveness of prayer. Of course, Jesus, again, is the ultimate model of this, the, the righteous man at prayer. All of Jesus' prayers were and are answered because he is perfectly righteous. Hebrews 5 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's fervency. Then it goes on and says, He was heard because of his reverence. Why did the Father hear the prayers of Jesus the Son? Because he offered them with reverence. Because he lived a reverent, that is, an obedient life. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 where the disciples are trying to cast out a demon from a boy. And they fail. And so then the father brings his demon-possessed boy to Jesus. The disciples failed because of their lack of faith. Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation. And then Jesus, the man of faith, the righteous man, cast the demon out. But the point of that story is really interesting. One of the points of that story, it's really interesting. The disciples should have been able to do what Jesus did. They should have been able to perform the exorcism. Their sin, their doubts, their double-mindedness hindered their prayer. They could not cast out the demon through prayer because of their doubting, because of their faithlessness. So in a very real sense, we can say there are conditions on having your prayer answered. And James sums up all those conditions with that term, righteousness. You want to hear, you want to have your prayers answered? You want God to hear you when you pray and answer you? Live a righteous life. Yeah, it's not just James who says this. This is from 1 John chapter 3. John puts it this way. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because... Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Why does God give us what we ask in prayer? Because we're seeking to please him and be obedient to his commandments. Ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin puts a barrier between you and God. In fact, it's interesting, in the very context of teaching about this kind of effective prayer, in in verse 16, James has just said, confess your sins to one another. Remove the barrier. Remove the the, the block of sin so you can have free communication with God in prayer. 
Now, obviously, we're always going to be sinners in this life. We're always going to have things in our life that are impure, that stain and, and mar our life. We're always going to have indwelling sin. The point here is not some kind of perfectionism. But what is the pattern of your life? It's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life. Where are you headed? Are you growing in obedience, growing in righteousness? Are you learning each day more and more how to obey God and put into practice the truth you've learned? If so, you can expect your prayers to have ever-increasing effectiveness and power. Sin that has not been dealt with in your life cuts you off from God, cuts you off from communication with God. If you want your prayers to be heard by God, walk in God's ways, live in fellowship with Him, and repent of your sin. We've probably all known Christians who had uh, what you might call peculiarly powerful prayer lives. Seems like they just, they prayed and things happened. And maybe it's just, it seems like a coincidence at first, but pretty soon you know a pattern. Wow, when this person prays, God answers. Uh, those of us who are, who are long timers here might remember Aunt Betty, who was very much that way, beloved Aunt Betty, uh, who, whose prayer life uh, was, was famous for just this reason among us. Uh, because when she prayed, things happened. Why? Why do some people have peculiarly powerful prayer lives? I think this is a big part of the answer. Because they live righteously before God. Far too many Christians are presumptuous. They think they can live pretty much however they want, day by day. And then when they're in trouble, they can pray and have their prayer. I would tell you, not so fast. James would say, not so fast, my friend. You must live a righteous life. Back up your prayers with a life of righteousness. Now, it's true. God might graciously answer the prayers of a backslidden Christian or a compromised Christian or a Christian who's making little effort to be righteous. But that's not our expectation. Prayers backed by a life of consistent righteousness are always going to be more effective. Kids, you know how this works. Kids, you know all about this. Kids, if you disobey mom and dad, if you have a bad day and you've disobeyed mom and dad a bunch one day, you know that's not the best time to go and ask mom and dad for some favor. Right? <laughs> First seek forgiveness, then ask for the favor. And mom and dad will be much more ready to give if they see you as loyal and obedient. See, receiving from your parents is connected to obeying your parents. Your parents want to give you good gifts. But more than that, they want to have a good relationship with you. And your disobedience gets in the way of that good relationship. So it also gets in the way of, of the gifts. And it's the same in all of our relationships with God. God listens to the godly. He heeds the prayers of those who heed his word. If you want God to listen to you, you've got to listen to him. Now, again, I, I need to clarify this. That does not mean that if your prayer is not answered, you should automatically assume it's because of some sin in your life. Paul's a good example of that with his thorn in the flesh. Paul was certainly righteous and asked three times for the thorn to be taken away. And God simply said, no. You know, Paul didn't get the answer he wanted, even though he was obviously a very righteous man. So just because God doesn't answer a prayer the way you want doesn't automatically mean that you should assume you've got some kind of sin uh, that's in the way. But you at least ought to consider the possibility. You at least ought to be open to considering that possibility. The point here is that our faithful service to God and our love for Him has a bearing on the effectiveness of our prayers. 
God is not some impersonal vending machine handing out answered prayers to anyone and everyone. No, God is personal. And we have a personal relationship with him. And that's why the quality of our lives and the quality of our relationship with him matters when it comes to having our prayers answered. Effective prayer is not a matter of techniques and formulas. It's a matter of righteous living. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the righteous is acceptable to him. Proverbs 15.29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, presumably too far to hear their cries, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The closer you get to God by living in obedience, the more effective your prayers will be. That is James' point. But there is a third dimension here when it comes to faithful prayer, and it grows out of what we've just looked at. And this is the content of our prayers. What do we pray for? If you want to have your prayers heard and answered, if you want your prayers to be powerful, you have to pray for the right things. Well, the more righteous we become, the more the content of our prayer is transformed. As your life is transformed, the things you pray for are transformed as well. And so as you grow in righteousness, your prayers become more and more aligned with God's purposes. It's really interesting, again, going back to Elijah. If you look at the story of Elijah in 1 Kings that James refers to here, multiple times in that story, God gives Elijah commands. And every single time, Elijah obeys right away. He obeys to the T every single time. Yahweh says and Elijah does. Yahweh says do X and Elijah does X. And in fact, the way the story is written, the exact same language that is used to give the command is then used to describe Elijah's obedience. So we get the point. Elijah is doing exactly what God says. So Elijah is obedient. And because Elijah is obedient, therefore his prayers will have a kind of effectiveness. So then when Elijah says to, to the Lord, will you do Y, the Lord does Y. So God says do X, Elijah does X. Elijah says, Lord, do Y, and the Lord does Y. And that's the way the story works. But, but here's what's also interesting. It's not just that Elijah is obedient. It's also what he prays for. Consider Elijah's prayer. That's the illustration that James gives us here. What did he pray for? What should a righteous man have prayed for in Elijah's situation? Remember what's happening in Israel at this point in their history. Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen. They're ruling over the nation. And they've led the nation into idolatry and sexual immorality. The people are worshiping Baal. And the true prophets of the Lord are on the run. And they're hiding out in caves. And Elijah had legitimate reason to fear for his life. And so he could have prayed for his own personal comforts. He could have prayed for his own personal glory in this situation. He could have prayed for some kind of personal revenge, some kind of personal vendetta. But none of those things explain why he prays for what he prays for. He prays for famine and drought. Why? He is praying according to Scripture. He is praying down the curses of the covenant. If Israel turned from the Lord... God had said through Moses back in Deuteronomy 28, if you turn away from the Lord, the Lord will make the heavens as bronze. He will not give rain that you need to make the earth fruitful. He will bring drought and famine. That will be the curse of the covenant. And the curse will last as long as the people are in rebellion. What is Elijah praying for when he prays that it would not rain? He is praying for God's covenant justice. The focus of his prayer is not himself. The scope of his concern is so much broader. This is what you could call a kingdom prayer. 
It's for the advance of God's kingdom. Now he knows for God's kingdom to advance, judgment must fall. And so Elijah prays for that judgment. And it's a judgment that lasts three and a half years. Three and a half is a broken seven to represent the fact that the Israelites have broken God's covenant. They've broken God's law. Elijah's prayer is shaped by the promises and threats of the covenant. And this is how our prayers should be offered as well. What should the content of our prayer be? Our prayers should ultimately focus on the great concerns of God's kingdom. Ultimately, that everything human, everything in the whole creation, would be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what every prayer should be about. Now, we can pray for individual concerns. In the preceding verse, James has just described praying for recovery of health during a time of illness. But all of our prayers, even when we're praying for things like the the restoration of our health or when we're praying for personal prosperity, all of those prayers should be subsumed under the kingdom. The ultimate purpose of prayer is to bring in the kingdom. And so we are praying for God's sake, even when we're praying for for our own sake. Even if you're praying for the restoration of your health because you've been sick, you're praying, Lord, restore me to health so I can serve you better, so I can serve you more faithfully. Lord, I think I can serve you better healthy than sick, so make me healthy so I can be an agent and an instrument of your kingdom coming. This is what it means to pray according to God's will. It's to pray for God's name to be hallowed in our health or in our sickness. It's to pray for God's kingdom to come whether that means America repenting or America collapsing. This is what it means to pray according to the will of God. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is our confidence towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Our prayers will be answered according to the will of God when those prayers are prayed according to the will of God. Even Jesus in prayer had to submit his prayers to the will of his Father. Even Jesus qualified his prayers, not my will, but yours be done. So here's my plea to you. Do not waste your prayers. Pray like you mean it. Pray earnestly. Pray fervently. Pray with energy. Pour your heart out in prayer. And further, pray righteously. Pray as the outflow of living a righteous life. Back up your prayers with righteous living. And finally, pray according to God's will revealed in Scripture. Pray according to God's kingdom priorities. Pray this way and you can know God delights in your prayer. And God delights to answer your prayer. James tells us that Elijah is a model of what our prayers can accomplish. Oh, we might say Elijah was a prophet. He's so different than us. But no, James says he's a man just like us. He's got the same nature that we do. Anything that would cause you fear would have caused Elijah fear too. Anything that would be hard for you to do would have been hard for Elijah to do as well. He was just a man of flesh and bone just like us. He was a mere man. But he controlled the weather in Israel for three and a half years with his prayers. And James is saying to us, you can do the same thing. There is no reason we should not be praying just as effectively and powerfully as Elijah. Don't waste your prayers. Pray with power. Effective prayer like Elijah's is not beyond your reach. 
Do you feel helpless? Do you feel helpless at times, maybe helpless in your family? You know, there's some issue, crisis in your family you don't seem to be able to solve. You look at everything going on in the world all around us and you feel helpless, like you can't do anything about it. Look, it would have been easy for Elijah to feel helpless. But because Elijah stood in the presence of the Lord in prayer, because he prayed fervently and because he lived righteously, he had a power in prayer greater than Ahab and Jezebel's power. Because Ahab and Jezebel certainly couldn't control the weather. Greater than Baal's power. Baal was supposed to be the storm god. Elijah's power in prayer is greater than Baal's. You, my friends, have that same power. A power greater than than Joe Biden or the CDC or the CPC or anything else you want to name. You have got a greater power. You are not helpless. John Knox was a man just like us in the 16th century. And he loved his native land of Scotland. And he loved God and he loved the gospel and he loved what God was doing in that great event we call the Reformation. And he wanted to see the Reformation come to his nation, his land of Scotland. But there were massive political and spiritual barriers to the spread of the Reformation in Scotland. But Knox was a righteous man. And indeed, he suffered a great deal because of his righteousness, because of his faithfulness, suffered a great deal at the hands of Bloody Mary. But Knox also knew, as he said, one man with God on his side is a majority. And so he did not fear his enemies. And he prayed. He prayed for his land of Scotland. He prayed fervently. His most famous prayer, very simple. He prayed, Lord, give me Scotland lest I die. Lord, give me Scotland for the cause of the Reformation. Give Scotland to me for the sake of the gospel or I will die. He was not making some arrogant or selfish demand. He was making a passionate plea. He was asking the Lord to give him Scotland that the nation might be reformed according to God's word. And the fervent prayers of that righteous man, John Knox, were effective. And Scotland became perhaps the most thoroughly reformed nation in all of Europe for many generations. Look, not every Christian has the gifts to be a great theologian. Not every Christian has the gifts to be a great missionary, but every Christian can be great at prayer. Every Christian can be great at this. The Lord stands ready and willing to do great things for his people if we will only pray fervently and live righteously. Just as Elijah humiliated Baal, we can bring Satan and the gods of our age, the idols of our age, to their knees. We can humiliate those gods. We just have to pray fervently and out of righteousness. You know, there are a lot of reasons why Christians offer up lame duck prayers. One is I don't think Christians sometimes uh, believe prayer will really do anything. We don't really expect our prayers to accomplish anything. So we pray very vaguely and, and very indifferently. No, James shows us how wrong that is. Prayer really does change things. Prayer really does change the world. Elijah knew this, and that's why every time he prayed up on Mount Carmel, he sent his servant to look. He was expecting an answer. And finally, on the seventh time, that answer came. In Neil Postman's book, 
amusing ourselves to death, he laments the fact that most of the information we receive through media today is not actionable. We're just overwhelmed, just continually we have this information washing over us, mostly about how bad things are. And we can form opinions about the uh, events and issues of the day, but we can't really do anything about them. And so we hear about rising inflation, but what can any of us do about it? We hear about war in the Middle East, but what can any of us do about it? We know all about the COVID crisis, but what can any of us do about it? And Postman says this is one of the great crises of the modern age. There's nothing we can do. We're helpless in the face of all this information, mostly bad news, that constantly comes before us. I would say Postman was wrong. There is something you can do. You can pray fervently and out of righteousness to the true God, the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord over all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you can do. You are not helpless. You have the power of the infinite, of the infinite and omnipotent God at your disposal. You are not helpless. God is there ready and willing to help righteous men who will pray fervently according to God's kingdom priorities. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.